So today we're going to see what I call unbelieving activism. Now this is something that we can see often in our culture, but it is nothing new. It is crusading zealots who are setting out to undermine and sway anyone who might possibly be influenced by Jesus. This is not even new to Jesus' time. This goes all the way back to the beginning. The very beginning when God says, in the beginning, chapter 1 of Genesis. Move two chapters forward. And there's enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. This hatred from the enemy of God and all those who are his, who hate the seed of the woman, the, the promised seed. And that hatred has not subsided. It was the same at the time of Christ and it is the same today. For us, we're going to dig into some of that this morning. But for those of us who are believers, sometimes we take it for granted because when our eyes are open, we think unbelief is inconceivable. All the evidence is right there. How can you not believe? But I want you to get this and write it down and remember it. Belief is not a matter of fact. It is a matter of faith. Belief is not a matter of fact, it is a matter of faith. Meaning, all the facts in all the world cannot make you believe. It must be through faith that you believe. And we're going to see that because the most irrefutable facts are on display in front of some of the Jews this morning. There are those among Israel who are called by his name who hate him. And so the Jews have always had this complicated relationship with their God. God's desire is that they be saved and that they worship him for the one and only true God that he is. But their desire is selfish and for themselves and for their own comfort and complacency. And before we get too comfortable or too arrogant and think this is just the Jews, we are no different. Apart from Christ, we only want our own comfort. We want no part of God. We want a God of our own making. We want to be God. It's exactly what Eve was guilty of when she ate of the fruit. And she was cursed because of it. And it was through Eve that curse came into the world. But it was through a woman where the cure for that sin came into the world. So this morning... As we look at this, these are thick theological concepts, and this is going to be a grown-up conversation. Even the kids who are here, last week was more emotional. We talk about Lazarus coming out of the grave. This week, you better have your Bibles ready, because there's going to be some things that are going to make a lot of people uncomfortable, and it's going to challenge shallow Christianity this morning. And so I want to set the basis for this in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Because I will argue that many Christians in most churches have an unbiblical view of sin, of hell, and of our own depravity. We think sin is too small and God is too small. But Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians, the state of sin and its effect on humanity. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Let's stop for a moment here. He's writing to Christians. He's speaking to Christians who were dead, who were following the prince of this world. 
You were following Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The same evil one, the same spirit working in those who hate God was working in you before Christ. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. My good friends and pastors used to say that this is the most beautiful but in the entire Bible. (laughs) Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love of which he had for us, us who are dead, us who are children of wrath, us who follow Satan, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and it is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the gospel. In our text this morning, there's going to be a lot of thick, uh, again, theological symbolism. There's going to be intentionality here and a lot of irony. So John uses his words carefully, and it's going to uh, really put on display those who conspire, those um, unbelieving activists against Christ. So let's read together in John chapter 11. I'm going to finish up the chapter today. Starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better... For you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, He should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. (laughs) Heavenly Father, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. Worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Righteous in all that you do. Holy is who you are. Wonderful, mighty, glorious. Being rich in mercy. You call sinners to yourself. Sinners who by their very nature hate you and want to be you. Sinners who want nothing more than to dethrone you so that we can be on the throne ourselves. But you send your king to sit on your holy hill. You laugh when the nations plot in vain. You laugh when the rulers rage against you. And you beckon repentance and forgiveness of sins. Taking refuge in the Son that we might find peace and reconciliation in Him. Lord, I just pray that Your Spirit would guide us, teach us, convict us. Conform us to the image of Your Son that we may glorify You in all we do and encourage one another by Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore. We know when a therefore comes, it is, it is connecting and adding to what just came before. So last week, we saw Jesus do his greatest miracle to date. Lazarus was in the tomb four days. Expiration date is over. He's dead. He's really dead. And John repeats it so we know that he's really dead. And Jesus raises him and he comes out. And so the therefore is pointing to this event. All these professional mourners, all these Jews who came from Jerusalem, gathered with Mary and Martha, and they witnessed this. They watched Lazarus walk out of the tomb. Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen it. They came with Mary and they saw this. Many witnesses believed. I want to stop there. Anyone else struck by many here? How thick do you have to be to see someone walk out of the grave and not everyone believed? Many believed. Really? Like what, what other proof do you need? You know, a dead man walks out of the grave. But as we said before, without faith, no amount of evidence will convince you. So you want to think about that. If you see someone walk out of the grave and you say, yeah, I'm still on the fence. You're going to remain on the fence. And as always, there's going to be this mixed response to Jesus. Because many of the Jews who had come with Mary had seen what he did and they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told him what Jesus had done. As is always the case, when confronted with the truth of Christ, a battle line is drawn. And you show your true colors when confronted with the evidence of Christ. You either align yourself with the seed of the woman or you show yourself to be a seed of the serpent. And some of them saw this dead man walk up and said, I got to go tell his enemies. Right there, they said, I got to pick a side. I can either choose the side of the guy who can bring someone out of the grave or I'm going to choose a side out of these grumpy religious guys over here. I'm going to take option B, apparently. 
You've got to be so committed to your religious institution and to your unbelief that you say, I'm going to be an enemy of Christ in light of his greatest miracle. Amen. Amen. So what is the result of this? So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said this word council means a gathering of all the religious leaders. The elders came together. Primarily the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Let's talk about these two groups for for just a moment, because these two groups did not get along. The Pharisees were the moralists. They were the ones who kept the law of Moses and added hundreds, well over probably a thousand additional laws to the law of Moses so that they could seem more righteous. And their whole life was moralistic, that they would keep these laws. So their their goal was always religious. We want to keep our system. We want to protect our uh our way of life, we're going to circle the wagons around what we teach and what we do. But the Sadducees are more opportunistic. The Sadducees were not as, were not as religious. They were more political. Most of the priests of that day were Sadducees. They were the ones who had the, the, the money and the, and the influence and, and the power. And so that'll kind of set up what's about to happen here in just a moment. But as we see these, these people who generally did not get along, they, their, their big disagreements over the resurrection. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. They will come together and fulfill Psalm 2-2, which we read earlier. They will come together. The rulers of this age will come together against God and against his anointed. And the rulers charged with ruling God's people will come together in fulfillment of Psalm 2-2. So this council, what is the council gathering for? So the priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now, I want to get you guys to think through scripture. Uh, a couple of the guys mentioned from our, our men's trip that they were amazed that they could sit for two hours and discuss eight verses. That was a scratch in the surface. We could have been there all day. Um, but when you when you when you meditate on God's word and when you work through it and you pay attention to what the scripture says, you'll, you'll, you'll pick up on, on things that you can't get through some quick glance. Look at these words here. For this man performed many signs. They don't deny that Jesus did them. They're discussing them. This is the topic of conversation. Look what he's done. He just raised someone from the grave. There's no lack of evidence here. This is not a matter of fact. They're discussing the facts. But a heart of stone does not desire God or the things of God. A heart of stone hates God. It reminds us of Ephesians 2. These are men who are still dead. Who are following the prince of the air. Children of wrath. Who say, look what Jesus did. He's got to be stopped. He's raising people from the dead. Everyone's going to believe in him. So now here's where I'm going to make some people uncomfortable. I want to address a a, a misconception that happens a lot. So um, I heard someone who claims to be a Christian, a a, uh, prominent actor, and was talking about what it means to be a Christian. And he began all right. And he said that, well, I know no one's perfect and and God is merciful. uh, So I'm just hoping God grades on a curve. I'm hoping that I'm probably 70 percent good. And that he will accept me into heaven because I've done more good than, than bad. And this was his justification. Someone who's claiming to be a Christian. A grown man who should know better. 
let's be real here. Most Christians do not have a biblical view of hell and of sin. And we, we laid the foundation for that earlier. Because we like to say, well, everyone, if given the evidence, they would want heaven. No, they wouldn't. Children of wrath do not want the things of God. They hate God. They're following the prince of the air, the serpent, who will bite the heel of the woman's child. Always being at enmity. If given enough evidence, everyone would choose God. No, they wouldn't. The carnal heart hates Christ. The word at enmity. They're enemies of God. Because he threatens our desire to be our own gods, little g. Now let's take it a step further. Everyone in hell wants to be there. Everyone in hell wants to be there. If you don't want Jesus in this life, you won't want him in the next. And you don't believe me, let's look at Jesus' words on the very subject. Look at Luke chapter 16. Because there's a tendency to read this passage in John and think that, well, there just wasn't enough evidence. Or, that's just the Pharisees. No, it is not. I don't think it's coincidental that the main character in this parable in Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19, his name is Lazarus. And Jesus tells of Lazarus and a rich man. I'm going to read this entire account because it's a great story, but it's a great application to where we are. Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously each day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man died also and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in the flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, send uh Excuse me, and I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the grave, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced of someone if someone should rise from the dead. So as you read that, what's the one thing you don't hear in this entire exchange? This is the rich man who is on fire, who is being tormented. What is the one thing you do not hear? Repentance. There is no repentance. 
He is in torment and he still can't say, forgive me, I've sinned, let me be with you. He's accepted his place because that's where he belongs. And what's even crazier is he says, give them more evidence. Raise Lazarus from the grave so that they may believe. And what is Jesus's response? What is the response of, excuse me, Abraham here? They have Moses and the prophets. Let him hear them. They've got God's word. If they don't believe God's word, a dead man could stand in front of them and it wouldn't make any difference. The gospel is the power of salvation, not any evidence. Physical evidence. The gospel is evidence. But, but you see what we're getting at here. A man, he's, he's begging for Lazarus to be resurrected so that they will believe. And in John 11, Lazarus is resurrected and they don't believe. Because they do not believe God's word, because they do not know God. They hate him. They, they want to be with the rich man burning. It's crazy to think about, but it's unavoidable when we get in in scripture. Lazarus rose and they didn't believe. Jesus rose and they still don't believe. There's no amount of evidence that is going to bring you out of your dead heart unless the Holy Spirit goes in and breathes life in you anew and gives you faith to trust in him. So let's continue in our text. Verse 48. So now that we know the heart and the character of these men, if we let him go on like this, they say, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If we let them continue, everyone will believe. You know, they say this as a bad thing. We got to do something or everyone's going to believe. Everyone. That's how committed they are to hating God. They know how amazing this is. They know what is at stake here. Why is this a bad thing? Look at the word that's repeated twice there. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Their concern is for their kingdom. They're not saying that he's disrupting proper worship, that God is not being honored through this. It's how does this affect us? This is the carnal man on full display. How does this affect us? It will take our place and our nation. And this word place, uh, tapas, it, it could be seen as your, your, your status, but it's more of a physical location. It's where we get topography from. And it's probably associated with the temple. That was their place. That was the center of Jewish worship. And their identity, sadly, is in the temple, not in God. But the irony of all this is, is that John wrote this letter uh, around 90 AD. This happened around 30 AD. At 70 AD, the Romans came and destroyed the temple, drug it to the ground, and imprisoned or scattered all of the Jews. So in their desire to save their place and their nation, by silencing Christ, they lose it all within most of their lifetimes. Our place, when they're tied to something physical, it's bound not to last. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, it, it wasn't meant to, to last. It's amazing that they're so concerned for their own nation, and they're ultimately under Roman rule. This is a, a pseudo-freedom. 
They assume that they're free, but at any moment, Rome can take that freedom from them. And just like our sin, the Jews have this appearance of freedom. People who are in their sin assume that they're free. But their ruler, the Rome or Satan, you know, insert your own your own evil villain in this, can come at any moment and take that freedom that you think you have. And ultimately, they're choosing their kingdom, the one that they've created in place of God's kingdom. And this shows their commitment to themselves. But really, nothing has changed, right? Does this sound familiar? Anyone applying this inwardly? God, why would you upset my little world? I like things the way they are. Don't do that because you might upset my kingdom. Why would you upset my idea of freedom? This is what makes me feel free. Even though I'm under the, the, the tyranny of oppressive sin. But don't disrupt that. Not much has changed in our human condition. But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all. Caiaphas Caiaphas is an interesting character. Um, He was the high priest that year and every year from AD 18 to AD 36. And so he's from a prestigious priestly family. And uh, he would have been the senior member of that meeting. He's the high priest. Now, we don't know much about his character here. We can kind of get a, a, a sense. But Matthew gives us a better picture. Look at Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew kind of tells us what's going on at this time. Look at Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. So this plot that's going on, Caiaphas' living room. You think, you think Caiaphas is a fan of Jesus? Uh, it's in his house, verse 4, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, let there be an uproar among the people. They're afraid of Rome, but they're even more afraid of the people. But Caiaphas is the ringleader here. Skip forward to the end of the chapter and uh, look at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and was going inside and going inside. He sat with the guards to see the end. Now, the chief priests and the whole council, all these elders, again, Pharisees, Sadducees, were seeking false testimony against Jesus. All of them in one one accord. The rulers are plotting against God's anointed, seeking false witness. But they found none. Many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up Caiaphas again and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to them, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas made that connection. He was no fool. He may have been wicked, but he was no fool. The Christ is the Son of God. Jesus said, You have said it so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he he deserves death. And he spit on him and he struck his face. This is Caiaphas. 
This is just a few, uh, a, a few weeks after this. This is the, the type of man he is. And then he says, you, you know nothing. This is the strongest negative in the Greek. You do not know nothing. This is bad English, but this is strong Greek. And what, what, he's, what he's saying here is, you are idiots. And uh, Josephus also tells us that the Sadducees were very condescending. They looked down on, on, on everyone. He, like, you picture him pointing his fingers at the Pharisees. You, you know nothing. I'm the political strategist here. You know nothing. Nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. You know nothing, and nor do you understand. But how little does Caiaphas know, and how little does Caiaphas understand, and how much greater is the truth really? Because look at the words he says here, and John uses, and these, these words are spoken of as prophecy in the next verse. But the words are intentional, and the words are meaningful. Look at this. It is better for you, meaning the collective you, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Better for you that one man should die for the people on their behalf instead of that, than that the whole nation would perish. That sounds like a gospel proclamation from a wicked man. But in his own way, this is selfish. Kill him, save everyone else. Typical politician. For the greater good, I'm going to throw this guy under the bus. For my own comfort, just to make sure I keep my office, let's kill this guy. But John, um, oh, before we go on, uh, one, one more point here. The tension that always happens throughout Scripture is that what man means for evil, God intends for good. And at the same time, the wicked plans of evil men is under the sovereign hand of God. Genesis 50, 20 says this. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Anyone know what's going on in Genesis 50? Joseph. So this is Joseph whose brothers sell him into slavery. For years, he's, he's separated from them. But when the time comes... For Israel to uh, be uh, delivered from this, this famine, he uses Joseph, who was sent into slavery. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see the parallel here? Man's evil, God's good to save his people. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel... Sermon by Peter in chapter 2. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. It's like 40 days after Jesus' resurrection. This Jesus, listen to the tension here, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. If your God had nothing to do with the crucifixion of Jesus, your God is too small. This is God's plan to save his people. But at the same time, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The same wicked desires, you did it. But God meant it for good. The next verse goes on to say, but God raised him up. The power of God is to save and to raise, even though the power of men is to kill and destroy. 
Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Take heart in this. Commit this verse to memory. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the Lord's will that stands. When things don't make sense, when it seems like the, the, the wicked are getting their way all of the time, God is a puppet master, just just moving them to his will for the greater glory of the good of his people and for the sake of his name. And the greatest irony in all of this is Caiaphas is the high priest. The high priest is supposed to bring the people to God. It's supposed to be his representative here on earth who is persecuting the true high priest. Caiaphas is high priest for a year. Jesus is high priest for eternity. That is why the temple had to be destroyed. Because of evil man's hands, it could never be fully clean. We're going to read later from Hebrews chapter 9. But it was only the blood of the perfect sacrifice that could purify the people and the temple. Let's move on. So John gives us here uh, a kind of parenthetical note as he loves to do. John tells us theologically what's going on in the situation. Verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, talking about Caiaphas again, being high priest that year. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Even though he does not know the Lord, his office is high priest of the people. And the Holy Spirit uses this vessel of wrath to prophesy truth for the people. The spirit of prophecy is speaking through this evil man. And but now John attests it rightly. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now before it was just, let's sacrifice this man. But Jesus will die for the nation. Jesus' death is not about him. His death is for the nation. And it came to, it came to the Jews first. We'll get to this in the next verse. Jesus' death is on behalf of or instead of the nation. His death is substitutionary. We talked about this several weeks ago, but you need to get this. There is an exchange that is going on here. He is substituting his blood, his righteousness for their sin, for the sake of the nation. Now, we don't believe in universalism. This is not for everyone in the nation. But if it wasn't for Christ, the entire nation would perish. For the nation to continue, he must die for them. And the perfect price must be paid. This is called propitiation. Romans chapter 5 tells us that. Go uh, two books in the future in your Bible. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Paul gives us this again. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Yep, that's us. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps a good person, one might dare even to die. But God, again, but God. Shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, don't skip over that word. Apart from Christ, we are enemies of God. Even the most religious person apart from Christ are enemies of God. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received this reconciliation. It is a transference 
It is a justification. It is a righteousness of Christ on us. And that makes us rejoice because we are enemies of God apart from it. We are no better than the Pharisees apart from faith in Christ. Caiaphas, this selfish opportunist. His goal is political, but God's goal is grand and spiritual. Look at verse 52. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. There's a lot here. I want to unpack this. And um, this is a theme that we've touched on many times in the past few chapters of John. The children of God. Should make us think about chapter 8. To make us think about chapter 10. And we talked about the children of God. And we reject this idea that everyone is a child of God. Everyone is made in the image of God. But not everyone is a child of God. This is specific language here. Just like the sheep. Now, they are not children because they're gathered. They're gathered because they're children. Just like they don't believe. Um, or excuse me. They're not sheep because they believe. They believe because they're sheep. Out of their identity, they are gathered in. And it is not just for the, for the Jews. Salvation came to Jerusalem first and spread out from there. Jesus said, I came for the lost sheep of Israel. But you, my disciples, you go to the ends of the earth. This is the gospel. This, this verse is so theologically rich. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Think about chapter 10, that whole shepherd analogy. I have sheep who are not of this flock. So I'm going to gather them as one flock, as one shepherd. This is the same doctrine just reiterated. So there are many things we can learn from this passage. And write these down, commit these to memory. Uh, just think on these th- this, this week. Here's what we learned about the death of Christ. First is one sacrifice. One man should die that the many might live. It is final. The last sacrifice. No more are required. So that people won't perish. It is salvific. It is to die so that others may live. Salvation is the goal here. And it is on behalf of the nation of Israel. It is substitutionary. Because Israel cannot save themselves and Israel does not want salvation. Blood must be spent for them. But more broadly, all. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God. All the children of God, it is complete. Christ's death is completing those sheep in Israel and those sheep from other folds. It is for the children of God. It is electing. It is God's elect, God's children scattered all over the earth who will be brought in. And it is adopting so that they can be called children. And so that they can be gathered into one. It is also uniting. This is why the death and resurrection of Christ is essential to everything. If you get the resurrection wrong, everything else falls. If you get atonement wrong, everything else falls. If you get election wrong, it makes no sense. If you get adoption wrong, your your Christianity is incomplete. If you get unity wrong, you will be a theologically correct curmudgeon. This is, this is to bring the people of God together in one act, through one person, through one sacrifice. All will be completed in Caiaphas. This 
wicked high priest is prophesying out of his mind, quite literally. And John gives us the, the, the insight. It makes me think of the words of uh, the great hymn, The Church is One Foundation. Second verse is this. Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. This is God's grace toward his people on full display. This is the grace of God. One sacrifice for the many, for the children of God, uniting them, completing it, adopting them. And what is the response to this? The most beautiful news the world will ever hear. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Well, of course. Because what do you do when when the gospel is proclaimed? You either repent and believe and run to your Savior, or you want him to die. At least they're consistent. And so here we see their passive hatred that is going on behind the scenes that is now public, and it is actively murderous. And as Jesus told us, if you have hatred in your heart, is it as good as murdering someone? This is what happens when hatred in your heart is unrepented of. It will turn into murder. And you also see this contrast. There's a lot of contrast in this passage. Some believe, some went to the Pharisees. John just explains how Jesus' power is to give life. But the council was doing everything in their power to put him to death. And yet, the two are essential for one another. We think of Acts 2. If it was not for their murderous hearts and God's plan, this would not have been perfect in its accomplishment. Therefore, verse 54, Jesus, therefore, again, looking back to what just happened, because of all this, he no longer walked openly among them, but went from there uh, to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, this is about a month before Passover. So his time had still not yet come. So he goes to the wilderness and he stays there for about a month. Uh, his time will come in verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Fast forward a, a month. Now, we don't have to talk about what happened in this time because the synoptics, Matthew, Mark and Luke already have. If you want to read what Jesus is doing during this time, you can look at Matthew 19 and 20, Mark chapter 10 and Luke 17 through 19. But I do want to read one of those. Mark chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 32. So look at what's happening here. So Jesus spent his time away from Jerusalem. Now they're going back to Jerusalem. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is Mark 10, 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. 
and after three days he will rise. This is where we find ourselves. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from, from the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Um, one, other, one other detail here. We can kind of skip past this. So in this seven-day or eight-day feast, purification was required to enter into the, the temple. And depending on the amount of sin you had in your life, you may need several days of purification. So these Jews are coming up early to purify themselves. But the irony here is they're coming up early, and just in a second we're going to see that they're plotting against Jesus to purify themselves when the one who would purify the temple forever is marching to his final act in the flesh. Foreshadowing the purification that would, that would happen once for all. Uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. The other writer of Hebrews pulls this together. Because in the Jewish life, their entire culture was surrounded around temple worship and all of these festivals. But the temple was never meant to be the end. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, the blood and bulls of goats could never cover all the sins again and again and again. Look at chapter 9. Get through my pages sticking together. Um, Starting in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... Of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, so not of of the, the, the temple made with human hands, he entered once for all into the holy places, the holy of holies, the center of the temple, and not by means of blood of bulls and goats, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So these people who are going to the temple are seeking purification. But what does the writer of Hebrews tell us about that? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience uh, from dead works to serve the living God? These people in empty religion who are doing what they've always been, been told to do are going to this temple conspiring against Jesus. The only one who could truly purify them. So how do we know they're conspiring against Jesus? Look at verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to this feast at all? This is like bullies waiting for you on the playground. Is he going to show up? You know, is he man enough? He wouldn't dare show up here. And you got these people who are cleaning themselves, feeling religious, standing in the temple, Uh, not wanting to touch anything because they don't want to be defiled again, looking around, where is this Jesus guy? We're holier than he is. We're here to purify ourselves. But little did they know. Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. I mean, this is organized crime putting out a calculated hit. The word has, has gone out. Soon as you see him, let us know. We want to arrest him and eventually put him to death. They hate him so much that it has consumed them. They can't worship God. They can't focus on, on, on the temple. They can't come and praise God for the Passover, the deliverance of, of them from Egypt, the, the reminder of the forgiveness of sins. They can't worship because there's so much hatred in their heart. These are people with all the evidence of divine work. 
the witnesses have come to them. Many of them have seen this with their own eyes. And, and these leaders are supposed to be the ambassadors of Yahweh, the teachers of the people. And yet they're evil murderers. And this is the state of every religious person apart from Christ. So simple conclusion, my final thought. We are no different than the Jews. If it were up to us in our flesh, we would crucify Christ so we could reign in his place. But God, rich in mercy, sent Christ so he died in our place. Let's pray. Lord, when we contemplate on these greater and higher things, I pray that we would feel the weight of these truths. That we would be burdened by our own sin and need for a Savior. That we would be broken of our own desire to be God and our hatred for you. That we would be comforted when we think on Jesus Christ. We would rejoice when we think of the cross. We would celebrate when we remember your blood spilt for us on our behalf. Lord, I pray that the cross of Christ would remind us constantly of the great mercy we have received. And if we have not received mercy if we are still at enmity with you, if anyone here is at enmity with you, that you show that to them, convict them of it. Not to be like Lazarus as he burns, but to repent and cry out to you, Lord, save me. Lord, I need your blood. I need your purification because no bulls or goats or sacrifices or empty religious activities can do this. I need you. Thank you that your grace is enough. Your sacrifice is perfect and completing. And through you, our sins, past, present, and future, are atoned for. This is what we celebrate. This is what we rejoice. This is who you are, and this is who we are in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.